0: elder Bob and his wife Kay Van Fletteren. They're on a plane right now heading into Haiti with their ministry Trezo that they've had for over a decade serving a community there through a school that they have planted and supported. They've asked for prayers because there's still tension in the area right now. Uh, They also have a project uh, to turn electricity on in certain parts of the community. They also have to uh, conduct teacher training while they are there. So we want to remember Elder Bob and Sister Kay as they are in Haiti for the next week. And then also we want to thank the Lord our God for not only hearing our prayers, but prayers throughout this community and around the country. Because on Monday, Centoya Brown was granted clemency by Governor Bill Haslow. And for that, we're very grateful. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. This morning, we begin a new series we're going to spend some time in called Rich and Poor Together. And it's taken from our vision statement, which comes from Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, when Paul says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And as you know, our vision statement is to experience, explain and expand God's diverse kingdom, which is found in Galatians 3:28 as it pertains to race, class, and gender. God wants us to experience that and not have to wait for heaven to experience diversity. He wants us to experience not only racial and gender uh, unity, but also as we'll be spending time the next several weeks dealing with class and economics. And how many know that as we deal with class and economic issues, it's going to take us down the path of gender. It's also going to take us down the path of race. But above all, we're going to stay on the path of the Word of God as we strive to be Christians who are in the world but not of the world. Um, God put a calling on my life pastor, such a wonderful church. Um, This year will be 24 years, and I'm so humble and grateful, and we feel that we have a great responsibility not only to enjoy this, but to teach it, but also to expand it. So pray with me as we begin our time today in the Word. Father, I thank you for what Paul said how he said that Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. (laughs) Be magnified, Lord Jesus. And as we exalt you, we decrease as we sang today. It's not about us, and it surely isn't up to us. It's all about you, and it's up to you. But in your sovereign plan, you use broken people. In your sovereign plan, you use people who have fallen, people who are sinful, people who lack. And you like it that way. Because when you give us power, when you give us grace, when you give us gifts to glorify your name and build your kingdom, you get all of the glory. So, Lord, thank you that we can be vessels. And we want to be vessels fit for the master's use. Lord, today we are closer to your return than we were yesterday. And we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord, we love you. We need you. We thank you. We thank you that we are your body. You are the head. And so, Lord, we want to take our dictates this morning because until you come, we want to make sure that we are soldiers obeying every command that you have for us, corporately as well as personally. So, Lord, speak through the power of your word, this word that will not return void, this word that has a way of discerning the thoughts and intents of every heart, starting with this speaker. Oh, God, can't wait to hear what you're going to say, and I can't wait to see what you're going to call us to do. Thank you, oh, God. Bless this church to be a blessing, for it's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen. two weeks ago, I was contacted by a staff pastor of a very prominent church in the city of Nashville. He wanted to talk to me because he had been given the assignment to speak on the Sunday before Martin Luther King Day, which will be next Sunday. So, he reached out to me to see if he could pick my brain and get some advice because he was somewhat hesitant to speak to his church because his church is 99.9% Caucasian. And he knows that when you come in and you speak on messages of racial reconciliation, biblical justice, whatever the case may be, that sometimes it can be received um, in a manner that can be devastating to the speaker. Um, And so he just wanted to talk to me and pick my brain. And what I'm going to share with you this morning and even next week is what I shared with him as we sat in Frothy Monkey in Franklin, Tennessee, just a couple weeks ago. And I'm calling this message today, What Racial Reconciliation Requires. What Racial Reconciliation Requires, part one. And we're gonna be in a passage in the book of Acts this week and next week. I'm gonna give you principles of racial reconciliation, not a formula. There is no formula for racial reconciliation. But there are biblical principles that work when we work the principles. It's like personal trainers. You guys train us, and many times we give up because before we see the results, it hurts. (laughs) Before we see the results, there are too many sacrifices. So, we give up on the program because it hurts so much. No, the program works, but you got to be willing to work the program. The principles of biblical reconciliation work, but many of us give up on them because it hurts too much, or we're not seeing the results we want to see as quickly as we wanted to see them. But reconciliation of any kind, especially racial, uh, does not come at discount prices. (laughs) It's going to cost you. But what we pay pales in comparison to what we will receive. Join me in Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 16, reading from the New King James Version. The Bible reads, Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul Greatly annoyed. That means he was ticked off. She got on his last nerve. He turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that the hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So what you see here is the Apostle Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. They have embarked upon what is known as the second missionary journey. And they are taking the gospel out to let men and women, Jews and Gentiles, know that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And while they found themselves in Philippi, which was in Macedonia, Philippi, according to Scripture, was the chief city of that region. Paul went there because of a dream he saw a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. So Paul and his companions went into Macedonia, went into Philippi. They met a woman there named Lydia. They shared the gospel with her by the river. She gave her heart to Jesus Christ. And so Paul and his men began to minister in the region and people were coming to Jesus. And the Bible lets us know that he also continued praying. So as it were, he went to pray. It was part of his habit. His necessity, but as we just read, uh, he cast a demon out of a slave girl. He messed with some people's money, and some people decided to mess with Paul. Don't you know when you mess over folk money, they got a problem with you? So the Bible says that they were seized, which means they were grabbed, they were taken before a magistrate really an unfair trial, they were stripped naked, beaten, so the people became judge, jury, and almost executioner in that spot, and in case you read right over it, not only was economics involved in this uh, miscarriage of justice, but also race or ethnicity, Because when the magistrates came against Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they said that these people are Jews. We are Romans. So, therefore, the persecution came against them from a racial dimension. And being Jews, they were in the minority in that area because it was a Gentile region. And the ones in authority were also in majority. They had power, more power than Paul and his Jewish friends. And racism is when one abuses their power based on race. You see, prejudice is when I have a, you know, I I don't like you or I'm believing stereotypes and and I'm submitting to all of the the things that are in my heart about you. I, I have preferences against your people, about your people, biases, implicit, known, unknown. But that doesn't really hurt me until you yoke your prejudice with power against me and you use the fact that you have this power and you're in the majority to hurt me and we see here that Paul was put in jail. Put in jail for what? He had to have been guilty. No, he wasn't. He was just doing what God told him to do. But in that moment, he didn't have the power to resist what happened. But there was a sovereign God in control who was using what happened to spark a revival in the community And also to bring about the saving of a jailer. Oh, you got to love what God is up to. So even when things go bad, God has a way of turning bad things into good things. But race played a part in these men being jailed. And race still plays a part in today's prison industrial complex. I think I'm on biblical footing. I think we can see that there's nothing new under the sun, so we shouldn't be surprised. According to Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, she says there are more black men under correctional control today than there were under slavery in 1850. Black Americans make up 13.6% of the United States population but black men make up 40.2% of the prison population. The 13th Amendment may have put an official end to slavery, but it opened the door to another kind of slavery, and that is mass incarceration. This fact has led attorney and founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, Brian Stevenson, to say, slavery didn't end in 1865, it just evolved. So, with the so-called war on drugs, which was a war on poor people, i.e. a war on black and brown people, one in three black men became convicted felons, which bars them from voting, receiving housing benefits, and finding work in licensed occupations. So, when men got out of prison, it's hard to find work when you are an ex-felon. And so, therefore, you are making up a permanent underclass now. Employers are often reluctant to hire otherwise qualified applicants with criminal records, even when formal rules barring convicts may not exist. This system labels black men, limits their potential, and sets them up to return to a life of criminal activity and thus a return to prison. The prison industrial complex is a new way to discriminate against black people, and it allows the rich to keep getting richer off their backs. Even though studies show that whites use and sell illegal drugs at rates equal to or above blacks, studies also reveal that blacks are targeted more often and convicted more harshly than whites. Once again, the Bible reminds us that there's nothing new under the sun. Paul and his men were targeted because of their ethnicity. They were unfairly tried and unjustly jailed. They were beaten within an inch of their lives. And those things still happen today, even when you love Jesus. So follow me as I look at a couple of principles from this passage, because sometimes you can only see the stars against the backdrop of night. So I'm so glad there's still hope in God, and there's hope in this passage. I'm so glad it doesn't end here, but there's so much more to the story. So the first thing I want to see and say to our body is that racial reconciliation requires mercy. That's the first principle from this passage. Racial reconciliation requires mercy. Look at verse 25, but at midnight... Is anybody going through a midnight trial, a midnight situation? Well, here's some application of something we can do. Paul and Silas were complaining and grumbling. No, 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 no. They were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. You know, when I read that, it reminds me of things I've learned about the Civil Rights Movement, that when um, black people were arrested during that time, they would— go into the paddy wagon singing, ain't going to let nobody turn me around. They, they would be taken into the jail cells and they would begin to sing, we shall overcome. And they would see the, the guards listening and watching and peering in as they began to pray because there was a power resident in those behind bars that those who were free outside of the bars did not have. <laughs> Verse 26 Suddenly. Anybody need something suddenly to happen in your life? Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison were shaken. And immediately, I need God to do something suddenly and immediately in my life every now and then. Yes, he can. Yes, he does. All the doors were open. Anybody need a door open? Lord, I need it open. Lord, you're the God of open doors. He also closes them too. So we got to accept that when he does that. It says, and everyone's chains were loosed. A miracle had occurred. So not only Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, but everybody who was already in jail, their chains fell off too. Verse 27, and the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself but Paul called with a loud voice saying do yourself no harm for we are all here what you just read was an act of mercy Paul and Silas were victimized by an unjust legal system yet they chose to show mercy to their oppressor If their hearts were not full of mercy, they would have let their oppressor kill himself in that moment because they could have said, God is judging him justly for how he treated us. And if he did not personally beat us and strip us, he at least locked us up and he is part of the people and the system that have us in this place at this time. So rather than trying to play God in this situation to see this man kill himself, they chose to act like God and extend mercy to this sinner. Oh yeah, because that's what we ought to do. We ought to be like God and extend mercy to others. Recipients of mercy should be the greatest dispensers of mercy. Can I get an amen? If you've received mercy from God, You ought to be able to give mercy to others, even your oppressors, even your enemies. And this is where a lot of people from my community want to throw shoes at me because they don't want to give mercy to the historical oppressor. You may not have oppressed and and before you email me and say I never owned slaves, I know you never owned slaves, but you're part of a people from a historical perspective that represent and in many cases benefit from oppression. And so, Paul extended to the jailer the kind of mercy God extended to him. Pastor, what do you mean? Remember, Paul got dragged into jail. Remember Paul's testimony when he was lost. He would, according to Acts chapter 8, verse 3, drag Christians into jail. (laughs) men and women and children. So Paul knew what it was like to use power to hurt powerless people. Paul knew what it was like. He wasn't so saved that that was far removed from his experience and his mind. And so he recognizes that God had mercy on him by saving him in Acts chapter 9 after Acts chapter 7 and 8 where he's consenting to the death of Stephen and he's dragging men and women off and he's terrorizing the church. But God met him on the Damascus road. And not that terrorist off of his high horse blinded him. And at that moment was when he saw Jesus for himself and became a believer in the Lord. God turned him around and made him a different person. So Paul is like, if he could show that kind of mercy to me, who am I not to show that kind of mercy to this man right here? (laughs) My God, mercy can be defined as the outward manifestation of pity. It is withholding the judgment that one deserves. Mercy is when God doesn't give us what our sinful actions have earned. Mercy, God not giving you what you deserve. Grace, God giving you what you cannot earn and what you need. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And if mercy, chin, is coming after me, where God stoops down to bestow kindness to me. In the Old Testament, mercy is also translated in some English versions as loving kindness. So as God gives us loving kindness, as he stoops down to us, he puts his chin down to bless us. Chin, God puts his chin down. Who are we not to put our chin down and bless other people? Paul became a vessel, a conduit of mercy. Mercy didn't come to him and stop there and get clogged up in a, in a prideful heart. Mercy came to him and through him. <laughs> My goodness, Paul knew. If I can get me some new mercies this morning from the Lord, and I did, I can give some new mercies to this jailer who has locked us up. And in his book, Just Mercy, attorney Brian Stevenson writes, The power of just mercy is that it belongs to the undeserving. It is when mercy is least expected that it's most potent. This man wasn't expecting to have his life saved by the man he just arrested. And not only put in jail, but put in solitary confinement. And not just put in solitary confinement, but in a sense tortured him by putting his feet in the stocks. He got mercy from this man of God. This past week, pastors Hewitt Sawyers, Kevin Riggs, and historian Eric Jacobson, uh, we sat down with one of the media folks to talk about this vision that God has given us of a fuller story. And for those who are visiting from Virginia and others who may be watching by live stream, just to make it quick, um, we felt called by God to have a place of noble, or equal nobility, represented in our downtown square as it pertains to the history of the Civil War. Because since 1899, only one version, one representation of that bloody battle, bloody battles, was represented in our city. And there's so much more to our city than Confederate history and Confederate representation. And so we have taken it upon ourselves to begin a movement to see representation by way of markers surrounding what is called CHIP, that 20-foot statue in the middle of Franklin. So we want to have historical markers that call to other aspects of uh, the Civil War that also call attention to the African-American struggle and contribution. But the big prize of this is that we want to see an eight-foot statue of a United States colored troop soldier put right there in front of the courthouse, the old courthouse in downtown Franklin, adjacent to the Confederate memorial. And so, so it is happening. It is happening. It is happening. God has given us favor. And so as we're answering questions, they were asking, you know, like, how did this get started? And normally, we start off by talking about what happened in Charlottesville in 2017, in terms of what happened there around the monuments in that city. But we took it a little further back, and yes, there was mayhem, and and we had a prayer vigil coming out of that weekend, and that's where a lot of this started. But we went a little further back to 2015, when Dylan Roof entered into Mother Emanuel Church and killed nine worshipers in cold blood. And he went representing the Confederacy, white supremacists, uh, and Nazi beliefs, all of that. He was trying to start a race war. And thank God that that didn't happen, because where sin abounded, grace and love superabounded and swallowed up that movement that he was trying to begin. But what it did was it revealed that there are people out here. Who will go to those kind of lengths that what happened back in the day just didn't end? It went underground and it came above ground just recently. So we look back to that time. But as it pertains to mercy, I saw one of the greatest demonstrations of mercy in my entire life when Dylan Roof, after he was captured, and they stopped him by Burger King, white privilege even for. A mass murderer. I don't understand it. But then they take him in and he's standing for sentencing. And they allow uh, the families of the deceased to come and speak to him. He's not in the room, he's there by closed circuit TV. They can see him. He can see them, but he kept his head down for much of that time, and the judge allowed family members as part of their grieving and eventual healing process to say to him whatever they wanted to say. And rather than coming out cussing at this man, damning this man, condemning this man, these believers chose to show mercy to this man. As a matter of fact, Nadine Kalia the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, who was murdered that day at Bible study, Nadine said to Dylan Roof, I forgive you. You took someone very precious from me. I will never talk to her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. Now, there are a lot of things you can fake in life, But you can't fake forgiveness, especially under those kind of circumstances. So, who said the gospel of Jesus is not present in the black church? (laughs) No, you just saw the gospel right there displayed for all the world to see. And one after another, family members got up, and they gave mercy to this man. So, I want to say something to my black brothers and sisters as we try to keep it real. If these folks could extend mercy to a murderer, a man who killed family members while it's still fresh, if they could extend mercy to him, why can't we extend mercy to white folks in general? Because I know some black people, they don't want nothing to do with white people. And they claim to love Jesus. They don't want nothing to do with white people. They don't trust white people. Matter of fact, there are black people who have picked up various sects, and I'll even say cults, whereby they can have Yehoshua and have God and hate white people, very much like the nation of Islam, where they can have, quote-unquote, Allah and call white people blue-eyed devils. But that is not how our Lord teaches us. Matter of fact, if you come out on Bible study on Wednesday nights, we're going through First Peter. And First Peter is talking about how many times suffering comes and we're suffering for doing the right thing. We're suffering unjustly for living in a just way. And then he gives Jesus as the ultimate example for how to suffer when you haven't done anything wrong. And Jesus did not revile back when his revilers reviled at him. Jesus forgave those people. He forgave us as our sins nailed him to the cross. Who wants that anointing? I mean, if we're Christians, anointed ones after the anointed one, we're small anointed ones, Christians, follower of Christ, his Holy Spirit anoints us, conforms us to his image to be able to show mercy to people when the natural tendency is to give judgment. This is why the civil rights movement worked. Because the ministry of passive nonviolent resistance was the only thing that could get us through that time. And so, as more and more violence was perpetrated against churches and individuals, Dr. King led a movement of peace and love. And they were able to conquer police dogs and fire hoses and unjust cops with the weapon of love. And love still works. So, if we don't start repairing our relationship with mercy, we'll never make it down the rocky road of racial reconciliation. If we don't start here, and and when you look at this, Strong Tower, the oppressed were the ones who rose up to show mercy to the oppressor. And in the civil rights movement, even going back to slavery, the things that Charles' and Susan's people went through, where the oppressed showed more Jesus than the oppressor who claimed to have Jesus. And we won the oppressed over, not with our words, but with our love. It took time, but it works. But that's a hard principle that folks say, I don't want to do that, but I don't have anything else for you. Paul said, don't kill yourself, don't hurt yourself. I want you to live, man. Do you want your neighbor to live? I mean, Barney was on to something with that great theological song, I love you, (laughs) you love me, we're a great big family. I mean, he was on to something. Christians, love. Secondly, racial reconciliation requires, here it is, humility. You ready for this? Verse 29, then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Now, this is an extreme act of humility. For a white man, because he's European, with power to fall down demonstrably on his knees in front of Jewish men, brown men, Middle Eastern men, when he fell down, in front of them, the majority submitting to the minority. He ran the risk of being ridiculed by his peers. What are you doing falling down in front of these guys? They're Jews. What, what are you doing? Not only ridicule, but he could have lost his job if his superiors found out that he was falling down in front of the riffraff and in, in front of the prisoners, the common folk but when mercy gets a hold of your heart. God is working on this man, and this man doesn't care who's watching, who's looking. He knows what's right, and he humbles himself in front of these two men. And this action demonstrates submissiveness and a teachable spirit. He listened to Paul's instructions from then on. In a real sense, Paul just became this man's pastor. Uh As a matter of fact, Paul's running the prison yard. I I, got to drop that on you, because if I'm in jail with these Jewish men who are singing songs to Jesus, and then the earthquake and the prison doors run out, I mean, open, I'm running out those prison doors. But Paul said to the jailer, we're all here, which means I told all of them, don't y'all run. Dude, you got here yesterday, and you're trying to run things up in here. I mean, he's a big dog on the yard. He has influence because the jailer may have the position, but in this moment, Paul had the power. You see, Pharaoh had the position, but Moses had the power. Pilate had the position. But Jesus had the power. (laughs) So this man is exercising God's power in that moment. And this jailer was like, man, I'm falling down in front of you. I'm submitting to you. I'm listening to you. I will let you lead me or shepherd me. Paul became his pastor. Let me me say this to my white brothers and sisters because I'm an equal opportunity dispenser of truth. (laughs) Where in your life? Do you voluntarily place yourself under the leadership of black people, native people, Latino people, Asian people? Where in your life do you voluntarily place yourself under people of color? See, I talk to a lot of white folks all the time. I do conferences, I meet with people, but their lives are just grossly white. But yet they talk about they want diversity but they don't want to pay a price to experience the joys of diversity. And one way you do it is to submit yourself under people of color rather than expecting them to come to your church and assimilate into your church's culture. Maybe some of you are called to leave your white church and go to a multi-ethnic church or an all-black church and submit to them. Oh, wait a minute now. Many years ago, when we started Strong Tower, I think in our first year, we were at the Franklin YMCA, and Al and Ira James honored me by allowing me to be their pastor. Now, Al and Ira James, you've heard of Abraham and Sarah, right? They, They were old. Al and Ira, God rest their soul as they're in his presence. They were Abraham and Sarah's age when they came to submit to this young 27, 28-year-old African-American man. And it was just amazing. I mean, I was his pastor, and wherever we went, Cracker Barrel or out at wherever, he's introducing me to all of his friends. This is my pastor, y'all. I would have black friends visit from Baltimore, and they're like, I don't really believe this thing, you know, really working. And back then, we were 70% white. And they'd come in, they'd be like, man, them white folk listen to you. Them white folk, really, man. But I had to say to them, yeah, yeah, some of them listen to me. Because it's one thing for me to be your preacher. It's another thing for me to be your pastor. And yeah, we could play all that colorblind stuff all we want when we talk about submitting to a man, that, that, because it's hard enough to submit to anybody because of our natural tendencies to rebel and resist God-given authority. That, that, that's who we are by nature, but, but we are people of the Spirit. And so, when we submit to God, we follow patterns, biblical patterns of right submission in the home, in the workplace, and even in the church. But for white folks, it, it was hard for some of them, for me to be their pastor, because once I started leading them somewhere that they didn't want to go, or I didn't get their permission before we went, they didn't want to follow. Or if I started preaching some things that they didn't like or approve, even though other folk in the congregation was amening and thank God for that, uh, their ears were too sensitive. And many times they voted with their feet and they found the door as I found my voice and spoke with God's authority as a black man. And so, this experiment isn't easy because we've got to dwell together, and you've got to stay here in the church even when you don't like some stuff. You do that at home. (laughs) You don't like everything that's cooked, everything that's said, everything that's done. You don't like the vacations we choose, but you stay. I remember once I declared a corporate fast. Sometime in our third year, I declared a corporate fast. From the book of Daniel, we were fasting, and I declared a corporate fast. Strong Tower, we're going to do this together. Don't you know that after I said that, one of my wonderful white brothers came up to me and said to me, Chris, not Pastor Chris, Chris, you can't tell us how to fast. (sighs) And I have to tell you, in the midst of dealing with this, I go through racial trauma moments. And that affected me so much that I had to watch how I would assert my God-given authority from then on. And even to this day, I try to be careful that I'm not using my biblical authority to command, because I know it's tough for some people to to follow instructions when a black man is telling them what to do. And so it has affected me. Another thing that has affected me was the first and only time one of our white members called me nigger in a counseling session. Yeah, we had a counseling session, and husband didn't want to come. He didn't want to listen to what I had to say from the word as pertains to their marriage. So I'm in there, man, and he is hard as bricks. He, he's not listening, and he's been disrespectful to her. His presence, he's been disrespectful to me. And so the wife says, he didn't want to come today because he said he didn't want to hear nothing from no nigger. I looked at him like, did you say that? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I said it. Now, he had enough wisdom not to say that to me in the session. I I would have displayed mercy. I would have displayed mercy. But this is the real deal stuff here. Just because you may not go through it don't mean other people ain't going through it. But because I'm called, I don't quit. Because I'm called, man, I leave it to God. And even to this day, they, they ended up getting a divorce, But the wife is in another part of the country, still considers me her pastor. Her son, who was going through some demonic activity, has been loosed and freed, still calls me his pastor. So, you know, it's okay. It's a kingdom thing. It's a a kingdom thing, man. Ah, yeah. And so instead of getting humility many times, I'll get hostility. Latasha Morrison, founder of Be the Bridge, said, Part of the racial reconciliation process is supporting efforts led by people of color. I find it interesting, she said, when churches with no expertise will try to be the experts. This work requires relinquishing power. The posture of listener is spiritual work. So she's saying, listen. And in order to listen, you've got to humble yourself. But as you've been breathing the air of racism for hundreds of years, just like I have, there are things in the culture that are wrong, that we subscribe to. And there's this thing floating around the culture called white supremacist philosophy. You may not say I'm a white supremacist, but white supremacy affects and infects you in this society. Whiteness is centered as what's normal. So when we come along and challenge beauty and perspectives and doctrine and other views, it's looked down upon because white supremacy has held that number one seat for 400 years this year in the United States of America. So to say it doesn't affect me, you're lying. Because, and that's one reason we can't get healed, because we think we're well. But when I say, Lord, I'm sick, there are things I subscribe to. There are things I think. There are things I believe. And if people heard me say the things that I think about people of color, oh, Lord, you've been bitten by it. We live in a fallen world with fallen people who lead fallen systems. But Jesus comes. He redeems fallen people who go back into fallen systems in a fallen world to bring the kingdom perspective and not just submit to the southern way. Oh boy, okay. Y'all want me to move on? I'm gonna move on. <laughs> Thirdly and finally, racial reconciliation. I know, I know. It requires Jesus. Say what? Come on, pastor. That should be a given, right? Amen. It all depends on who you talk to. Cuz some folks are doing social work, not kingdom work. And if you invite me to anything involving trying to bring people together, I'm bringing Jesus. (laughs) So if you don't want me to come and talk about Jesus, don't invite me. He's the only way. The gospel is the only message that can bring people who are at odds together because we've all been at odds with God. So when we talk about reconciliation, it's about getting right with God first, becoming friends with God so we can become friends with one another, and that's through the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't know any other message that works, but here we are with the message that works, but we don't seem to apply it. Sunday is still the most segregated hour of the week in America. It was just as true when Dr. King said it in 1963 as it is today in 2019. Most churches don't look like this. Most churches don't look like this diverse group that came in from Virginia. It's beautiful when we're together. The world looks at us and says, there must be something going on there. By the love they're showing on one another, this Jesus must be real. And he is real. My God, he's real. So racial reconciliation requires Jesus. Look at verse 30. After he falls down, he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do? to be saved. So, they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. I love it. A lot of times as ministers, evangelists, as we're talking to family members, we're asking them, would you like to receive Jesus right now? We sense the Spirit is moving. Today is the day of salvation. We'll ask, would you like to receive Jesus? This has to be one of the only times I've ever read and seen somebody say, you don't have to ask me, I'm going to ask you. Why is he asking them how to be saved? Because he saw salvation in these guys. He, He saw something different about them, and he said, I want in. You have something, someone, that I don't have and that I realize that now I need. Because when they handed, me over, handed you over to me, you were bludgeoned and beaten and naked. You had been humiliated in front of the multitudes. Yet I could sense there was something different about you. You didn't have a bitter root. You weren't angry at them. You had this grace about you. And even when I took you into solitary confinement, You didn't complain. And when I put those stocks around your feet to keep you in one place in the darkness of that cell, you didn't cuss me out. So there's something I saw in you because I was asleep during the worship concert. He, He was asleep during the worship concert. He woke up from the earthquake. He didn't even hear that part. But what he saw in how they had dealt with persecution and because Paul said, don't kill yourself. In other words, Paul gave him mercy. He was like, I need to know that Jesus, y'all, what I got to do to get some of that? And Paul didn't say, go jump a pew, join a church, go in a corner over here and turn in circles. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, (laughs) the good news. So, the oppressed gave the oppressor the good news of Jesus Christ. And at that moment, they became brothers in the Lord, and their brothership in the Lord was greater than their natural status as Jew and Gentile. Oh, oh, coming to Christ didn't erase being Jew and Gentile, didn't erase the fact that Paul had to go back into that jail cell. But they had something that could not be taken away from them. Oh, man. So, he believed in Jesus, and when we think about today, racial reconciliation. One of the reasons it's hard to see Christians come together is because we have different Jesuses. We have different Jesuses. Which Jesus should we believe on? The liberal Jesus or the conservative Jesus? The Republican Jesus or the Democrat Jesus? Al Sharpton's Jesus or Robert Jeffress's Jesus? A Jesus who builds walls or a Jesus who builds bridges? A Jesus of segregation or a Jesus of integration? A Jesus who endorses white supremacy or one who repudiates white supremacy? And Before you say, well, what about black supremacy? Okay, yeah, that too. But blacks don't have the power that white folks have, okay? But dig this up state representative king out of Iowa. Just this past week, see, because we keeps it relevant, right? God has a word. This man from his congressional seat is saying, what's wrong with the philosophies of white supremacy and Western civilization being dominant? What's wrong with that? And white nationalism? So now, white folks who are fragile will get mad at me for using terms like black and white brother we're just people just don't call us black and white but i see no anger aimed at him when he talks about white nationalism white supremacy matter of fact just by all the congress stay silent and let this man espouse these views in 2018 19 when folks say racism don't exist no more and he's in a place of power man if i lived in iowa any brothers live in iowa man if i was in iowa Man, you must be. But he's been doing this. And he's the one who has helped feed the President of the United States' understanding as pertains to white nationalism and racism and the poor treatment of minorities. So this thing is ingrained in our institutions and in the minds of many of the people who lead them. And many of them will claim to follow Yehoshua, Jesus Christ. And I'm just like, what Jesus are you following? We have a tendency of making Jesus after our image rather than allowing the Holy Spirit to conform us to His. The jailer chose Jesus because of the Jesus he saw in Paul and Silas. And I just want somebody to choose Jesus because they see Jesus working in me, especially my enemies or the ones the world says or even history says, don't trust them. Oh, man, but the one I serve says, love your enemies. Give them mercy. We are not like those who have a form of godliness, but no power. Paul showed power in that moment to extend mercy to this man. And so, the power of God is shown up when we love people, when we forgive people, when we extend mercy. That's power but it's also demonstrated when you speak up, that's power. When you stand up, that's power. And so, I don't know about you, but the Jesus that I have a relationship with gives me power. And if I'm not showing that power, the problem is not with the source. The power is with the one connected to the source. And I need to make sure that I repent of my junk so that his power can flow through me freely to those who need it most. Oh my, I am done. So, I say in conclusion, there is no formula for racial reconciliation, but there are many biblical principles that work when applied. Today, we've seen that racial reconciliation requires mercy, humility, and Jesus, the true Jesus. Next week, we'll look at three more principles of reconciliation from this passage that will bless your socks off. So when it comes to racial reconciliation, in our divided nation, these divided states of America, if the church doesn't lead the way, who will? Who will? I love football. And a lot of times I see football players and football teams, at least on the field, having more diversity than most churches. And they're chasing after a crown that will pass away. They know how to put their differences aside, whether one came from Compton or one came from Wisconsin. Different cultures, not only different races, even different ethnicities. If you come from Cuba, you come into that room with one mission under one coach. And you submit yourself accordingly for a goal, a task at hand. And if they can do that by throwing around a leather ball, why can't we come together? Oh, my. I was in New York. Uh, We had taken our daughter up to New York. And then Doreen and I went back to visit. And we we visited like right around September, October. So it was still kind of warm here. And when I'm looking at what's going on in New York, I'm like, okay, it looks like they have the same weather there. So we went into New York, man, and then all of a sudden, that weather changed. That hawk hit a brother. Man, I was freezing. I had to find a coat. We're going to shops and corner stores because I had to buy a coat because I had to adjust my game plan because of what I had experienced in the atmosphere church. It's cold out here, and the love of many is waxing cold. If we don't adjust ourselves, we'll never be able to make a difference in the world. Would you stand with me for prayer? Let's stand for prayer. Amen. Amen. Go home and study the passage and pray. There's a call on this church. There's an assignment he's given us. It's not something we Simply talk about is something that we'd be about. And we will continue on. Rich and poor together, which means also classes and felon, ex-felon, free man together. How can we go beyond what the systems say and love one another the way God calls us to love each other? Maybe that means we got to hire somebody that our friends might question. Maybe that means we need to get up and go to another church and submit ourselves rather than just staying comfortable. But Jesus did not give us a bed to carry. He gave us a cross to carry. And it's worth it. Let's pray. Daddy, Lord, thank you. Nothing worthwhile is easy. Even our walk with you. It's definitely worthwhile, but it's far from easy. Especially if we try to carry the yoke on our own and not allow you to help us with it. And So God, forgive us when we want Christianity light, or racial reconciliation easy. There are no easy buttons with this, but there's sure enough mercy and grace, this goodness that's following us. Lord, transform our minds as we open this service today with what the kingdom says about relationships, with what the kingdom says about justice and forgiveness and mercy. And may we not just keep it to ourselves, and may we we surely not keep it in the church, but help us to take the kingdom and the gospel wherever we go to let people know that this wonder named Jesus has changed and is changing our lives from the inside out. And we submit to him, we follow him, we believe him, we obey him, we represent him as his ambassadors. So, Lord, thank you for this ministry of reconciliation. Continue to grow this ministry. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever ask or imagine. And it's according to the power that's working in us to you, O God, be the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and the power, both now and forevermore, and all of God's people said. Amen. Amen. You got to hug three people before you can go. You can't leave until you hug three people. If you want to talk to me about church membership, salvation, I'll be standing here at the front. Come see me. Come see me.